What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. I am on the road to Rio, heading to Brazil to cover the 2016 Summer Games. Today I'll set the stage and speak to one David W. Larkin, an international sports and anti-corruption attorney, about the Russian non-ban put down by the International Olympic Committee and whether this organization can actually be reformed. This game is so old, and it's one that Americans don't even slightly understand. And that is that sport has nothing to do with sport. Sport is geopolitics. Sport is about soft power. But first, a quick word on this. Donald Trump. You're asking Americans to trust you with their future. Let me ask you, have you even read the United States Constitution? I will, I will gladly lend you my copy. Have you ever been to Arlington Cemetery? Go look at the graves of brave patriots who died defending United States of America. You will see all faiths, genders, and ethnicities. You have sacrificed nothing and no one I don't think I've breathed since Kazir Khan said this, his wife Ghazala by his side, her face an absolute portrait of grief at having lost her son in Iraq a decade ago. It was unassailable except for the one person who assails everybody. And sure enough, remember, this was Donald Trump's response to the Khan's grief. If you look at his wife, she was standing there. She had nothing to say. She probably, maybe she wasn't allowed to have anything to say. You tell me, but plenty of people have written that. And then he didn't just stop after that. 
Donald Trump during a weekend where pretty bad economic news came out about the country instead was in a four-day fight with a gold star family. The profound Islamophobia on display, the anti-Islamic bigotry on display by Donald Trump has been exposed in a way by the Khan family that is better than a thousand think pieces and a million pundits. And it has exposed it so sharply because we're now at the question where you have to take a side. There is no middle ground here. The only thing that exists is whether you side with the cons or whether you side with Donald Trump. But I do want to say one word about this. One word. One of the things you keep hearing from liberals and conservatives, particularly the conservatives who are too scared to actually pull their endorsement from Trump but feel like they have to say something because you don't want to stand with the guy who's smearing a gold star mother for her grief, is what they're saying is gold star mothers, gold star parents should be off limits. Like whatever you do in politics, they have more than earned the right to speak their mind. And I wanted to say something about this because I met and was friends with Cindy Sheehan, who lost her son Casey in Iraq. And I'm remembering all of the criticism she got, frankly, across the political aisle from pro-war Democrats and the Bush administration and Republicans, because she dared stand up to George W. Bush and ask him that question of how can you justify the death of my son given that the war in Iraq was a completely ridiculous, illegal, and unfounded operation. She was attacked for that. She was not considered sacred. They tried to destroy her for standing up to the war. And that's the part of this Khan family discussion, which is so unsettling but under-discussed, and I just wanted to use my podcast to speak about this very briefly, is... What if the Khan family, instead of saying, how dare you dishonor our religion, Donald Trump, if they said, how dare this government have this war in the Middle East that took our son? Would people be as forgiving? Would they say that the Khans were off limits? Given the fact that they attacked a white lady, Cindy Sheehan, viciously, I have to think that they would go after this Muslim family brutally. And once again, this relates to sports in this way. One of the things we talk about on this show about sports and politics is that it's not sports and politics that the powers that be say shouldn't mix. It's sports and a certain kind of politics that they say shouldn't mix. As long as you support politics that supports the interests of the sports leagues and certainly patriotism and support the troops as part of that, then that kind of politics is fine. As soon as you start talking about politics that actually threaten the power of the leagues and the powers that be. What you find is that there are serious limits put on your First Amendment ability to be heard. And so all love and respect to the Khan family, their grief is our grief. And let's remember that all Gold Star families are off limits, including the ones who are standing up to this era of seemingly endless war. Now we have on the line international sport and anti-corruption attorney and co-director of the FIFA reform group Change FIFA, David W. Larkin. David, help us out here in understanding this. Uh, Russia as a country was not suspended, but 
the Russian athletes are basically de facto suspended until they apply to their individual athletic federations and are allowed to compete? This process is an absolute mess, and here's why. Let's start out with the McLaren Report. The McLaren Report was a report that the World Anti-Doping Association did that laid out some very serious allegations based on allegations by whistleblowers. And this is Richard McLaren, who's a Canadian investigator? I mean, what, what is his even role here? Yeah, he's an attorney. He's kind of a lawyer, sports lawyer, heavily involved in a lot of sports disputes. So what happened is that the World Anti-Doping Association, they're called WADA. So when I say WADA, that's what we're talking about, the global body that oversees anti-doping. All these allegations started coming out about impropriety and allegations of uh, state-run doping and all these really serious stuff started coming out. And it's not just one allegation, it's numerous allegations. And over time, all this built up to suggest that something was terribly wrong in Russia. McLaren was appointed as an independent person, quote-unquote, to really look at the seriousness of the allegations surrounding Sochi and these other things. The upshot of that is that what we have now is we have a very serious list of allegations in what's called the McLaren Report, which says something's really, really wrong in Russia and some really bad things have happened. But there's a huge caveat. And the huge caveat is this. The McLaren Report states expressly that no one in Russia has been asked any questions about any of this. So in terms of the way to think about it is it's basically like a prosecutor's brief where these serious allegations are made, yet we don't have any rebuttal. We don't have any counter evidence. Nobody in Russia has been allowed to answer these charges. And there's no appeals process as well once the report is issued. Is that correct? That's right. I mean, here's what's so strange about this sort of sports law world is that this allegation is leveled. It's unchallenged. And on that basis, we've now proceeded down this road as if all the allegations are true. Now, I'm not saying that the allegations are untrue. What I'm saying, though, and this is really important in terms of a legal procedure, is that they're unrebutted and unanswered. And that means that basically we don't know what's true of this report. Is it 98 percent? Is it 60 percent? When we're talking about the lives of these individual athletes, details matter. The other thing I would say when people are like, yeah, let's get Russia. It's so important. And look, I'm all for getting justice and taking these cases forward and taking these allegations very seriously. What people need to understand in this rush to judgment is that if we follow this bizarre procedure, while this year it's Russia, next year it could be the United States. Let me paint a scenario for you. Imagine that an entity in Russia had drawn up a report and it said the following. Uh, something in the United States has uh, occurred that's incredibly wrong. There's massive statewide doping. There's massive athletes complicit in this whole process. And on that basis, we've issued a report. And then on that basis, the athlete says, right, we're going to start banning people. And you go, well, wait a second. Doesn't the United States get to answer the charges? Maybe the charges are all true. Maybe the charges are all false. But don't we at least to get to state our case? And the answer is, in the current context of this process, the answer is no. David, you've no doubt seen the coverage in the United States, and particularly among some of the leading sports columnists and commentators. And the response, it's safe to say, has been literally rage 
that uh, Russia's flag will be flying at the Olympics, that there wasn't just this blanket, uh, not only condemnation, but as but banning of Russia from the games. How much of the response do you think has been colored by not just the United States current state of relations with Russia, which are not great, but it's incredible that this is happening right when Putin is in the news so much and the idea that he's influencing a U.S. election, influencing Donald Trump. How much of that narrative, which is so present in the media, is affecting this narrative about Russia and doping? You can't help but wonder if there's crossover. There is a really simplistic narrative being played out. Russia is evil. Yeah, and the thing is, is that look at Human Rights Watch and the reports of them, and there's plenty of rocks to be thrown. Look at uh, gay rights. There's lots of rocks that you can throw. But the thing that people don't understand, and this is what's so concerning about this rush to judgment, is that we're setting some really scary precedent. I mean, I'm here to tell you, is having worked in the sports and corruption world for six years, the procedures in sport justice are garbage. They're terrible. But guess what? If this is precedent, guess what, folks? They just got worse. Mm. The theme that runs through sports law and sports justice that continues to confound the issues, and this is also true of the reform movement and the quote-unquote sports integrity movement that's also a train wreck. There's two simple issues that you should always look out for, and they're always a problem. And nobody seems to take either of these seriously, and it's why we go nowhere, nowhere, and nowhere in sports integrity and justice. And that is one, conflicts of interest, and two, independence. And what's bizarre is that you hear, I mean, I was just reading the Court of Arbitration for Sport, uh, which is the sport court's statutes this morning. And just, just some light reading at 7 a.m. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I've, got, I've got a talk coming up at the American Bar Association on Thursday, and I'm trying to explain this world to American lawyers who also don't understand the system. And the system is simply this, that there's all this talk of, oh, we're independent, we're independent, independent. And here's reality, folks. None of this is independent. What's worse uh, in terms of reform, justice, oversight, FIFA or the IOC? Well, I think they're kind of one in the same. I mean, the thing you have to understand is that, first of all, both of these entities say they have a self-correcting mechanism, right? And they say, right. If something goes wrong, everybody stay out of our business. We're going to self-correct. And if you've watched historically, FIFA is the worst of the bunch. But the IOC also has problems. I mean, Salt Lake City was a huge scandal. And yes, they enacted reforms. But the idea that the problems in the IOC have gone away are false. The other thing you have to understand is that the umbrella body for both the IOC and FIFA as an IF, which is sort of a subsidiary of the IOC, that whole sport justice system in which we've operated for the last five years and had to live with and had to fight election fraud, corruption across the world at the national level and international level. The thing you have to understand is all of that system is basically one and the same. So you get overlap of IOC and FIFA justice, and that system is incredibly troubled and really inefficient and fails. Mm. And so the analogy that I use is this. Let's say sports an apartment, and right now sports a messy apartment. You should view sport justice as the vacuum cleaner, and I'm here to tell you that the vacuum cleaner doesn't work. Mm. So what's alarming is that people are like, yeah, we're going to clean up FIFA, and we're going to make it better, and da-da-da-da. And the reality is this. You could clean up FIFA till it's pristine tomorrow, 
But there's one big problem. We don't have the ability to keep it clean. Because even if the vacuum cleaner could work, the person working it is like Pigpen from the Peanuts comics. <laughs> Just this well, big cloud of dust. Even worse, it could be the world's greatest, most qualified cleaner, but the vacuum doesn't work. Mm. The system doesn't work. And what's bizarre, and I mean, I'm seeing this personally for the last month, and it, it's, it's maddening because you can't always tell these stories in public. But the problem here, folks, is this, is that the sport justice system is mediocre at best in the first world, and it is absolute garbage in the third world. And what happens is that you get this accumulation of election fraud and um, total and utter corruption at the national level. So think about the world and think about all these little nations across the world. In this justice system, as it's currently set up, in real terms, is not accessible to the third world and people suffering corruption and election fraud in the third world. In theory, it's available. In reality, I'm here to tell you it's not available. And so the base pyramid of the IOC, the base pyramid of FIFA, all those national associations, there's no ability in reality to clean up corruption and uh, election fraud. And that's why when you see these congresses where you go, it's the IOC, it's FIFA. It looks like North Korea because everybody's like, yes, we all fall in line. We all do exactly the same. You go, is this true democracy? No, it's not true democracy because you've got a corruption and election fraud problem across the board that's not redressable in reality through the sports justice system. And that's why the system's right now, we're not going to get anywhere. History will absolutely repeat itself and FIFA will have absolutely have more corruption in the future. Okay, I am giving you, David Larkin, unlimited funds, unlimited resources, uh, Harry Potter magic wand straight from Gryffindor, and a big floppy hat and a robe with some, uh, with some yellow stars and blue moons on it. And I am saying you have absolute power to reform FIFA and the IOC with no bureaucratic snafus or obstructions in your path. What do you do to make these institutions just and accountable and actually make the vacuum cleaner work? Get rid of the two things that we talked about. And that is to make them independent and get rid of the conflicts of interest. So do you think the way to do that is actually just to smash FIFA and the IOC and actually create new kinds of institutions to oversee the World Cup and the Olympics? Well, I think that the self-correction mechanisms are, are really what need to be fixed. I would take FIFA and IOC in, in sort of a different light. I think that FIFA has a cultural problem. You know, you, you read up on organizational experts like uh, Jim Collins and, and people like that who study these problems. The fix to a cultural problem is not more and additional people to the culture. The solution is to destroy the top level of the culture and start again. At the IOC, am I willing to say that the IOC culture is now so corrupt and so awful that it's toxic? I know some really good people in the IOC. And so I'm not sure I'm willing to go there completely, but a lot of this comes down to two real big problems. One that I've mentioned, which is the sport justice system. And the other is an incredibly unsophisticated legal infrastructure in terms of laws and procedures. I mean, the Girl Scouts of America has better due process procedures, in my opinion, than the IOC, FIFA, and most of the rest of the sports world. These are multi-billion dollar entities where you have basically carte blanche to do anything that you want to in terms of process without protecting the rights and athletes and these other people. Let me give you an example. 
when the IOC said, right, we've got some kind of a problem here. What we're going to do is we're going to initiate investigations. We're going to empower a disciplinary committee, and they're going to look at the serious allegations of the McLaren report, and they're going to enact natural justice. And you go, wait, what? Yeah. So what they're going to do, now let me demyth that for you. You know what natural justice really means? It's legal junk. And what it means is it means a fair and partial process. Well, you could drive a truck through the definition of that. So what it really means is you guys do whatever you want to and whatever, whether it's a good process, bad process, good procedures, bad procedures. Do people have a right to reply to the evidence they're accused of? Maybe they do, maybe they don't. It's arbitrary. In the U.S. government, we have something called administrative procedure. And I know this is boring, but hang with me. I'll, I'll make sense here in a second. <laughs> and, and administrative We're procedure. We're going on a journey with you, David. Take us <laughs> home, baby. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> and what happens is that administrative procedure basically says, right, when bad things happen, these are all the measures that are spelled out. These are the rules we're going to follow. This is the way that you can offer evidence. These are the rules of evidence. These are the kinds of things we're going to follow to make sure that we have an absolutely airtight set of procedures so that the public and lawyers like me can look at that procedure and go, yep, that's a good procedure. Or we can challenge it. We can say, you know what? You don't allow a party accused of wrongdoing a right to reply it or offer witnesses. And you know what? That's wrong. Mm. Under this umbrella definition of natural justice, nothing is spelled out. So it's just completely, whatever you guys decide, make it up. And the public, we have no understanding of whether these investigations are good, bad, fixed, corrupt. We have no idea. Wow. That's why this sort of arbitrary legalese that we get and this undefined procedure is so troubling is because you don't have any guarantees that the individual rights of athletes, the individual rights of administrators are protected. David Larkin, man, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much. That was David Larkin. You can follow him on Twitter. He's actually a terrific Twitter follow at Sport Corruption, all one word, Sport Corruption. And hey, if anybody out there is going to be at the American Bar Association, any of you wild party animals, you should absolutely go see David Larkin speak. That is Thursday in San Francisco. Now the section of the show we call Choice Words, where I read a column I wrote for The Nation. If you want to follow along, there's a link for it in the description of this podcast. This is called The Last Dance, The Road to Rio. This week, I travel to Rio for the 2016 Summer Olympics, and the purpose is to report on the last round of what has been a harrowing, exhausting, decade-long battle between the people of Brazil and the demands of those utterly unaccountable, scandal-plagued sports bodies that we just discussed with David Larkin, FIFA, and the IOC. Over that time, I've written countless articles and a book, Brazil's Dance with the Devil, about how combustible this situation could be, hosting the World Cup and the Olympics back-to-back with one city, Rio, as the epicenter for both events. This has never been done in history, let alone in the post-9-11 world, and would be a challenge for any country. Putting these mega-events in Brazil, for those in the United States just now learning about the country, must seem like madness. The news is filled with stories of disease, filthy water, and possible terror fears aimed at Olympic venues. These breathless missives are almost invariably framed in how these serious concerns would affect not the people of Rio, but tourists and athletes. It's worth noting, however, that today's dystopic landscape was yesterday's triumph. 
In 2008, Brazil's ruling elite and frankly many in the country were not apprehensive, but eager, excited, pumped to host the World Cup in the Olympics. And why not? The economy was booming. The ruling Workers' Party told the people that hosting these events would be a method for attacking economic inequality. And the nation broadly was ready to announce to the world that they were players. As David Larkin said, and this is just such a great example of this, this was never about sports. This was about patriotism and power. This was about the ascension of the BRIC countries. That's Brazil, Russia, India, China, on a sea of rising oil prices. This was about believing that a spot on the UN Security Council was within their grasp. And for the construction industry, this was about mega profits. So they were down to dance. As Alex Quadros, who's just a terrific writer about Brazil, he wrote this in The Atlantic, quote, Contracts for everything from stadium and train line construction to port renovations have funneled billions of dollars in taxpayer-subsidized revenues to a handful of Brazil's most powerful, well-connected families and their companies. This disconnect between populist promise, remember the Olympics were going to lessen inequality, and the uneven benefits that followed, is emblematic of the failed Olympic ambition to remake Rio and a slew of questionable priorities that have brought Brazil to its knees, end quote. It's a hell of a journey from that moment when Rio won the Olympics and Workers' Party leader and longtime president Lula da Silva said, I think this is the day to celebrate because Brazil has left behind the level of second-class countries and entered the ranks of first-class countries. Today we earned respect the world has finally recognized that this is Brazil's time. In retrospect, it's difficult to read these words and remember the general belief that hosting the Olympics would only aid Lula's social democratic vision and not think of the words of the novelist Saul Bellow, who once said, a great deal of intelligence can be invested in ignorance when the need for illusion is deep. The current horror show reflects Lula's own journey, from working-class labor leader during a time of military dictatorship to the heights of political power to someone who is now being brought to trial on charges of obstruction of justice. It's been a hell of a decade. I started covering this years ago because hosting these events seemed like a recipe for drama and dissent. But tack on the World Cup and the contradictions of a social democratic government pledging that these sporting events would somehow be a tool to attack inequality and conflict was inevitable. What I didn't see... What no one saw was how catastrophic everything was about to become. Oil prices fell, the economy contracted dramatically, and Brazil's rulers saw it as a moment to create political chaos by attacking the Workers' Party and impeach President Dilma Rousseff. Now, not unlike the candidacy of a certain jackass reality TV star, it is difficult to keep track of what we should be most outraged by and what event is most symbolic of all that is going wrong. I mean, think about it. What really is the best emblem of Rio's Olympic spiral? Is it the two skydivers who fell to their deaths while attempting to form the Olympic rings in an effort to hype the games? Was it the killing of Olympic mascot Juma the Jaguar by police? Or maybe it's the recent demonstration where protesters forcibly grabbed and extinguished the Olympic torch. 
Or are high-profile media moments like this just distracting us from the scandals that are going undiscussed? The police violence against the poorest citizens of Rio, the medical shortages as health officials attempt to stem the spread of the Zika virus, and the obscenity of spending billions of dollars while pressing needs go unaddressed. It is impossible to know how this will all end in two weeks. Catastrophe is an option. Also is the victory, the triumph of low expectations. But either way, even if this is the last dance for Rio's life in the eye of the FIFA IOC hurricane, the hangover begins the next day. The hope, and frankly our demand, should be that the media, who is only now discovering the crisis in Brazil, doesn't stop covering it once the confetti has been cleared. For people who live in Rio, one of the most vibrant cities on earth, the next two weeks might be their last dance with the IOC. But the struggle is only just beginning. And I, of course, will be doing interviews, reporting from Rio all next week, and we'll take a compilation of that for the next time we do this podcast. I cannot wait. And now the Just Stand Up Award this week. How can it not go to the women of the WNBA who've been defying NBA Commissioner Adam Silver, defying WNBA President Lisa Borders? and insisting on wearing shirts in protest of extrajudicial killings of young black men and women. And they have been getting fined for that, and they've been refusing to take off their shirts. They've been refusing to pay the fines. They've been refusing to speak to the media about anything other than the politics involved. And guess what? Adam Silver and Lisa Borders blinked, and they rescinded all the fines. This is a huge deal. Because remember, as we talked about last week, NBA players wore the I Can't Breathe shirts in December of 2014. And if you remember what happened, they got a warning also from Adam Silver, and then they just stopped wearing the shirts. The WNBA defied that warning. They got support from players in the NBA, and they won. Solidarity, folks. It's the only way to win. Big shout out to them. Also a shout out to Michael Bennett of the NFL, an open invite to Michael Bennett, Seattle Seahawks linebacker, great player, open invite to Michael Bennett to come on this show. He recently made comments to the press about the need for players to step up. And this is what he said, and I think it's such an important challenge that he's laid down. He said, in the NBA, the greatest players are at the forefront of the movement. In the NFL, the greatest players aren't. Our great players are sitting back just taking the dollars, whether it's Cam Newton or other guys. And then Michael Bennett said this, and I think it's one of the great distillations of this argument that a lot of us have been making for some time about the whole Charles Barkley, I am not a role model line. This is what Michael Bennett said. He said, when kids say they want me to be their role model, I always ask them, why? They say, it's because you play so great on the field. But I tell them that's a terrible reason to have a role model. When young kids look up to me, I want them to be like, man, this is a guy that's pushing for everything, end quote. I mean, think about it. Athletes are role models whether we want them to be or not. So then you have to ask yourself the question, what are they modeling? If they're modeling that it's cool to not care about politics, that it's cool to not give a damn about the world, then that ain't great. But if they're modeling that 
you don't have to be seven foot tall or 280 pounds to be a hero to your community, that you don't have to be somebody who makes a ton of money to be somebody who's revered, that actually you can be a hero for what you sacrifice, that you can be a hero for your principles, then it becomes very exciting. Then you're using the platform not just to sell something swoosh-laden or some powder drink crap, but you're actually using it to make a difference. And it's remarkable to see how many athletes just in the last couple of months have chosen to take up that challenge. It's remarkable the number of examples that we have of these athletes doing this that we did not have even four months ago. And I got to tell you this too, it's such a joy to have this podcast because what we've been able to do on a week-in, week-out basis is chart this development in real time. And I kind of feel like you know, we've been writing history as it happens. I feel like we're, we're animators and we're drawing as fast as we can, and yet the cartoon figures have on a life of their own. Thanks so much for listening to us. I'll be reporting from Rio. I'm Dave Zirin. Listen up, everybody. You can always talk to me on Twitter, at Edge of Sports. You can always contact me, edgesports at slate.com. We've got a remarkable, remarkable catalog of shows at this point. You can listen to all of them at edgesportspodcast.com and really chart this evolution of the athlete activist that has just been so mighty over the last year. And we set up a voicemail box. Yeah, we're really high tech here. It's 401-426-3343, 401-426-EDGE. And I have a question that I want you to answer. You call in, give your answer. We'll play them on the show. The question is a basic one. It is, are you watching the Olympics this year? Or are the stories about Rio overwhelming your ability to love the events themselves? Give us an answer on that, because I'll be honest with you. I am a lifelong Olympic critic, but there's something about the actual Olympic sports. There's something about the athletes and what they do. There's something about the beauty of some of these sporting events that we never get to watch, except when the Olympics are on, that are like catnip to me. What I always say is I want the Olympics a la carte. Give me the sports. Take away the debt, displacement, and militarization, and maybe we got something. In other words, give me the Olympics take away the International Olympic Committee. But I want to hear what you have to say. So please call it in. 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. For Dan Bloom, I'm Dave Zirin. We are out of here. Peace. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.